Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the week we've had, the week of service and the week of sharing what we know with others, perhaps. We've stumbled in our walk at times this week, and we confess those things to you in our own hearts, and we ask for your forgiveness, knowing, Father, that you are, you are good to, and righteous to extend us that forgiveness because of your Son. We ask, Father, for strength and courage to do better in the week to come. We know, Father, that you have plans for us this week and in the weeks to come. You have things that you have planned for us to do or say to others, to be your ambassador in one place or another, that you're concerned with our holiness, Father, and you're already at work, perhaps, to show us where we can do better. Father, you have uh, called us into your body and to become part of your children so that we would serve you and I pray Lord that would be our attitude but amidst all of the activity of our lives Father and all the ways we want to serve or be like you then we're also reminded at times just to be still and to know you are the Lord to rest in you to give time for you to speak to us Father and to hear from you so that we're not so distracted by our world that we assume busyness is a replacement for holiness We don't want that, Father. For at least this next 40 minutes or so, Father, we sit quietly listening to the word that you've given us. Preach through a man, Father, but taught by the Spirit. Let it be a time, Father, when we're considering, are we holy enough? Do we suit you enough in what we do and how we speak, how we act? Do we serve you with our whole hearts, Father? Those would be things, Father, that you can speak to us about, for we know, Father, that we have much to learn and much to do better. And it begins, Father, in your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Gideon is now officially behind us in the story of Judges. And a new character is going to take center stage for a while. And as we make that jump, let's take just a brief moment to summarize, if we can, what we've come to know of Gideon's time as a judge. I came upon a quote from a man, a guy named Daniel Block, who summarized Gideon, I think, in just really the perfect way. And so, uh, rather than come up with my own words, I'm just going to steal his words for us this morning. Here's what Daniel Block writes about Gideon. He says, Gideon personifies the typical Israelite in the period of the judges. He is more than half Canaanite in his outlook. He does not know how to relate to God. He does not want to get involved in the Lord's work. He is not beyond using his position for personal gain and influence. Recognizing the deficiencies in the man thrusts into sharper relief the contrasting patience and mercy of God. Gideon is a man God used in spite of himself. He is a rough vessel if ever there was one, but God is determined to get his work done, and in the absence of genuinely qualified leadership, he will use surprising vessels. I really like Block's outlook here. It's not pessimistic, it's not cynical, but it's realistic. Gideon was a rough vessel, as he calls him. And the reality of creation since the fall is that God works through imperfect people because that is all he has. We don't make excuse for imperfection. But on the other hand, we don't hold back from our opportunities to serve God on the basis that we don't feel we're qualified to do so, for there's never been such a person. So if we're waiting for the qualified people to take all the jobs that God has, well, we'll all sit and watch nothing happen. There's a necessity that God work through who he has. Now, that doesn't mean he's satisfied with who we are, but it does recognize the fact that you have to get involved with God before the work begins. So let's not venerate Gideon, 
but neither should we overlook his accomplishments in service to God. In fact, every judge basically in this book is revealed as, in one way or another, as a flawed character because that's the nature of the times that we find Israel in. This is a period, as we know, when God's people are living in the flesh. They are unwilling and they are unable in many cases to bow to the authority of God in heaven, but he sticks with them because of a promise he made in his covenant. So the pattern of judges now is ready to begin again. That cycle I've described many times. We see it begin here again after Gideon's death. This reminds us again of the truth of Scripture concerning our own situation, that there is no solution to our sin on earth, that our problem of wandering from God cannot be solved by any solution in our own power, that it has to come from somewhere else, ultimately from Christ. And the period of Judges is a lesson in that, if nothing else. So let's back up to the point in the text in chapter 8, where Gideon has died, and let's look at the start of this next cycle And what follows his death is actually a continuation of Gideon's story, at least in the way it shows his legacy. The next man that we're going to study now, a man called Abimelech, is actually not a judge at all. He's never appointed as such by God. He is an usurper. He is an opportunist. And therefore, he's really a footnote to the story of Gideon. We'll back up to Judges 8.33 and then onward into chapter 9 from there. Let's go to verse 33. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. And Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that seventy men, all the sons of Jeroboam, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem. And they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our relative. They gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baalbereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. So at Gideon's death, you see the inauguration of this new cycle. Sin, rebellion, God ultimately having to take some action in response. But we're just getting started here. You can see the people going astray once again. Right after Gideon's death, they played the harlot with Baal. That's the Canaanite god of the land again, right? They declare this pagan idol is now our god. So once more, you know the Lord's going to have to respond to this apostasy because he has something at stake here in the people of Israel. One thing I should note as we get into this is the people we're talking about here are not the very same people who rebelled in the last cycle. This is a whole new generation of Israel. The generation we last studied in which Gideon stepped forward and took care of the problem. That generation is gone now. We've got a new generation and yet you see... They're repeating the mistakes of their forefathers. Here's just one example you can go to out of many in the scriptures in which you see the way sin is inherited. The sin that began with Adam is passed down in the nature of each person. You receive it from your parents just like you did your hair color and your eyeballs and all the rest of you. Similarly, in a spiritual way, you receive the sin that they themselves received going back to Adam. And when that sin enters into us, it has the same effect in our nature that it does to any nature. And here you see the sins of the earlier generations of Israel being repeated in the next generation because, apart from the grace of God, every person's heart is desperately wicked. 
Every person has in themselves the capacity to do the very same things that anyone else of sin would do. Some of us choose to do more than others. In God's providence, He has a purpose in that. But none of us are excused from sin, and none of us are without it. And we cannot please God nor even follow Him unless we are given a new spirit by faith in Jesus Christ. So, once again, you see in this next generation of Israel, the same mistakes being repeated because they have the same sin their forefathers did. Once again, the Lord's going to intervene to correct this new generation. So, you remember back in Gideon's time, when he had that victory over the Midianites, there was that moment in which the elders, the leaders in the area that, that Gideon was in, over in Moab, as he finished defeating the Midianites, they came to him, you remember? And they said to him, Hey, we'd be willing to set up a Jewish dynasty and make you the king of that dynasty if you would like. And what did Gideon say? He refused the idea, right? He said, that's not for me. You should follow God, not me. Well, then, nevertheless, he acted as a king for the next 40 years. And he basically assumed the position for personal gain. He took many concubines. He fathered 70 sons, we're told. And like a monarch, Gideon assumed that his sons would take power after he died. For that's the way monarchs worked. And that was the expectation Gideon had for his own children. And the people of Israel had made the same assumption. They had assumed that when Gideon was dead, we'd have these 70 sons of Gideon who would become our judges in his place. But we're told here that people did not show kindness to Gideon's household. Notice how Samuel continues to use Gideon's new name, Jerobel. That name was the name that he was given after he tore down the altars to Baal that were in his hometown when he first began to serve the Lord. Remember, and his dad said, Oh, this is a son who will contend with Baal. So Jerobel became his name. And so Samuel uses this name now. But it's not being used in a complimentary sense now. Throughout this chapter, Gideon gets referred to by this new name in an ironic sense. Because he is not prevailing against Baal. His legacy is not one of prevailing against Baal. Quite to the contrary, Baal now is going to prevail against Israel for a time. One of Gideon's sons, we're told, Abimelech, a man born to one of his concubines in the city of Shechem, he decides that after Gideon has died, his father has died, that he kind of likes this life of royalty that he's been accustomed to. Because even though his father rejected the title of king, he's lived like one, as we've already seen. And when the father lives like a king, well, the sons get to enjoy the privilege of being princes, essentially. And, you know, once you've gotten used to that lifestyle, it's kind of hard to see that all that just go away. So Abimelech decides he's going to make a move to consolidate power and establish himself as the first king of Israel. And he begins this quest in his hometown of Shechem. This is the home in which his mother lived. This is where Gideon had one of his harems of concubines, we're told, in Shechem. And so you might imagine that Abimelech felt his hometown crowd would be a more receptive audience to his ambition. So he goes there first. And he proposes this solution. And in Shechem, he speaks with all the clan, we're told, of Gideon, who were living in that city. These are the other offspring of Gideon's concubines. So he, he basically has all his cousins. And he brings them all together. And he says that we have something at stake here. Remember, they're children of slave women. Concubines are slave wives. And in this culture, the children of slave wives were lesser in the family than the children of free wives. So perhaps you can imagine Abimelech maybe feeling a little vulnerable here. He feels he has to take authority for himself. Maybe he feared that he'd be excluded from whatever comes next from his brothers, those who were the 70 from free women. 
And so he's beginning to think, maybe in a paranoid sense, that I have to take control before they take it from me. I think in reality he's projecting his own feelings of paranoia on them. I don't think there's any indication in Scripture that he was going to suffer at the hands of the 70. But nonetheless, that's his excuse for wanting to take control for himself. So, here's the pitch that he makes to his family in Shechem. What's better for you? Is it better that you would take your bets with 70 people who don't live in Shechem and are from different mothers? Or would you rather it be me that rules over you? Do you want to see which of those 70 men end up ruling over you? Or do you want to take the one you know? The devil you know is better than the devil you don't. That's his argument. And of course, what do they say? Well, it looks like it's compelling because they say, well, you know, he is our relative after all. It is probably better that we be ruled by this guy than by someone who isn't connected to us. And here's the assumption they're making. When the king comes from your own family, you're going to have an advantage in the long run with the king, right? There's going to be some kind of favoritism. And any man who's going to be king is going to be a threat to those who are not on his side. So let's get a king that's on our side. Of course, what Abimelech really needs from these people is not just their words of support, not just some tacit level of support. What he needs is financial support. It's like a candidate running for office today. Money makes the wheels go round. And Abimelech needs money to hire an army of mercenaries who are going to let him take power. Basically, he wants to institute a coup, and he needs an army to go with him. And he gets 70 pieces of silver. And with this, he's able to purchase a band of men that are called worthless and reckless fellows. The Hebrew word for worthless just means empty, literally. So in this case, he's not saying they're empty up here. He's saying they're empty in here. They are without character. They are without integrity. They're mercenaries. And they're reckless in the sense that they're not going to consider the consequences of their choices or actions. They're just going to run headlong into this situation without giving it any thought. So that's where we start in chapter 9. We have the descendants of Gideon and all his various wives set up now for civil war in an attempt to consolidate power in his death. You notice God is absent in this conversation. The judge died and you have what looks to be chaos and anarchy following. So in the next few verses you see Abimelech's terrible plan begin to play out. Verse 5. Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerobel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerobel, was left, for he hid himself. All the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech the king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. So Abimelech, as you can see, he takes his worthless men. He travels to Gideon's home in Ophrah. Remember, that's where he set up that ephod, and that was his hometown. And they go there because that's apparently where the other brothers live, the 70 who come from a free wife or free wives. They attack his brothers, this little band does. They kill all but one of the 70 brothers. Samuel says they were killed on one stone, which is a way of indicating that there was a mass execution one at a time, probably by beheading on a stone. So you can imagine these guys just being lined up and having their heads cut off one at a time. Very methodical execution. Yet somehow we're told one of his sons, Jotham, the youngest, escapes the attack, hiding somewhere. So now you have a coup underway. The place, Beth Milo, it was a military fortress inside the city of Shechem. That's where they go to see the coronation of this supposed king. When the military is coronating your king, it's a coup, by definition. So you have the people and the army of Shechem pledging their support to Abimelech after they hear that all the other sons are died. 
Meanwhile, the son who escaped, he decides now, I've got to figure out a way to survive. Because clearly they're not going to rest in letting him live. They're going to look for him. And so he has to figure this out. And we hear in verse 7 that Jotham takes this stance of opposition against this king in a very public way. Verse 7. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come, reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go wave over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, You come, reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, You come, reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. And this scene might be familiar to you, uh, if you know the book of Joshua, that is, because it mirrors a moment in chapter 24 of Joshua. Not the parable, but the overall scene here. In chapter 24, if Joshua is coming to the end of his life and to the end of his reign over Israel as the captain of the people. And at that point, he gathers all the leaders of Israel to Shechem, the same place that you see Jotham standing now. And he puts forth to the people this challenge. He first reminds them of the covenant of law and all the requirements of the law. And then he commands the people in that famous comment that you may even have somewhere on a placard somewhere in your house, choose you this day whom you will serve, right? And he puts it before the people. You're either going to serve the gods of the Canaanites or you're going to serve the God who saved you. But in the words of Bob Dylan, you're going to serve somebody. So the question is, who are you going to serve? And the people in that moment, they all declare in unison that we're going to put away idols and we're going to follow the Lord in obedience. So here you have Jotham, I think, acting in a way that is reminiscent of what Joshua does. You have a leader of Israel, the only legitimate leader left, standing on the same place that Joshua stood, Mount Gerizim, which is the mountain right outside of Shechem. And he declares to the people of Israel, calling out to them, reconsider your actions. Are you going to follow false gods, and in this case a false king, or are you going to follow the law and follow the God of Israel and his appointed leaders? And he does it through a parable. This is, by the way, the very first parable recorded in all scripture, chronologically. The parable uses plants here, obviously, in place of people to explain the folly of what the men in Shechem are doing. And let's just go through it. You see here plants that represent the produce of Israel, right? You have olives and figs and the grapevine. All of these are produce of Israel, common produce in the land of Israel. And they are also all symbols of Israel at various times in the Bible. So when the Bible uses these things symbolically, they're picturing Israel. In this case, all three are present. And each plant in the parable is offered the chance to become king over the trees of the forest, the trees of Lebanon specifically. These trees represent the men, the leaders of Israel, in this case the leaders of the city of Shechem. And as you notice, each of these three elements, each of these three plants, refuse. They all turn down the offer to become a king, as it were, over the trees. They each have a different reason, but they're all along the same line of thought. Each of these plants is valued in God's economy for their obedience to God's purpose 
in their existence. God's purpose for these plants in serving Israel is very specific. Olives produce the oil which create the the fuel for the lamp and the tabernacle, right? Figs are the sweetness of the land that confirm that God is good in giving his people milk and honey. This land would be overflowing with goodness. And of course, the last one, vines of grapes produce the wine that brings cheer to both God and men. So each of these things has in its purpose of existence some fulfillment for God and his people, some goodness in that respect. Therefore, If it were possible for any of these plants to seek a different role, that is, in the terms of the metaphor, in terms of the parable, if it were possible for a grapevine to stop producing grapes so that it could spend its time being king over trees, it would not be fulfilling its purpose. It would be simply serving itself, its own ego, its own pride. It would have been abandoning a better purpose assigned by God so as to take up an inferior purpose assigned by men. And that is a timeless truth, by the way, that regulates our relationship with the Lord, no matter who we are, Old Testament saint, New Testament saint. We all have a specific God-given purpose in our very existence, one that is determined by the Creator Himself. We are not the product of chance and random chemistry. We have been designated by God to be born on a certain day, to live in a certain time of history, and to die on a certain day. All of that was determined before the foundations of the earth. Scripture says, which then means that the Creator had a specific reason to put us into the plan and to let us live for this time. That plan, that purpose, is our great calling as a believer. To understand what it is God wants us to do and to fulfill it is the call of a believer. Ultimately, it all traces to glorifying the Lord. We know that. But to say that and never go any further is to deny the reality of how you achieve that outcome, which is to get into the details. If I know my purpose in life is to glorify the Lord, that's fine, but I need to understand how I am to do that according to His plan, if I'm ever hopeful in actually accomplishing it. So, as I like to say, we were not born and then saved for our own sake. You are born physically and born again spiritually to serve a purpose that the Lord in heaven determined before you even knew you existed. And God's people will be happiest and most fulfilled when you are living in the counsel of His will concerning your purpose. And I've experienced that so many times in my life, I, I could spend the rest of the day giving you examples. Especially as a man with a role to earn the living for the family, in our case, as we decided it, you go out every day to earn that living. And how many men go to work every day and are utterly miserable with their chosen profession? But go out every day nonetheless in a sense of duty, and that's good, but there's a part of them that says, this can't be what life's all about. This can't be the fulfillment of what God wants for me. Am I really going to do this till I'm 65, then die, and that's going to be how I serve God the rest of my life? There's that sense that says, I can't wait till then to figure it out. I need to change now. And this is not unique to men, clearly. I'm just using that case as an example. If that's your attitude in life, something's wrong. Either the walk you have in life is not the one God has for you in spiritual terms, and there's some divergence there that you need to reconcile. Or you are not looking at your walk from the spiritual point of view. You may be exactly where he wants you to be, and you just haven't figured out how to use it for him. You've seen it with eyes that are too immature to see the fullness of it. I'm not saying everyone needs to change their profession, but the point is our happiness, our fulfillment in life, our spiritual satisfaction in life comes as a consequence of doing the very thing God put us on earth to do. And in my case, I feel very clear that he's wired me to teach the Bible. Whether it's a pastor or whether it's a Bible teacher or whether it's just in my home, that can come and go. But what is not going to change is teach the Bible. 
And when I'm able to do that, I feel that fullness in, in what God's called me to do. I can die tomorrow and I feel like I've been on the earth for a time to do what He called me to do and I feel like I've done that to whatever extent He gave me opportunity. All the other stuff is just noise. It's all there for reasons, I'm sure. You know, you have to get a job to eat. You have to have time for other things. But this is the purpose in life. Finding that point that God has made your life about, that's the key spiritually to being in His will, to doing what He wants. This parable basically teaches that truth. It's teaching it concerning a very specific set of circumstances, of course. But we are to live in the Lord's will because that's where blessing is found, spiritually and otherwise. Not everyone's content to do that, though, right? Not everyone is content to rest in God's authority and to serve the purpose He intended. Some, and we've all maybe done this to some extent, we all chase after the flesh once in a while, if not all the time. We do it out of pride, we do it out of fear, we do it out of lusts of one kind or another. If that's who you are, or in times perhaps in the past, if that's who you've been, then you're in this parable also, you're the bramble. The bramble is one who, when offered the opportunity to do something different, jumps at that chance, and it's folly, and it's obviously folly right from the start. Because you notice, the thing that the trees are seeking is shade. They want someone to come rule over us to shade us, and the bramble says, certainly I'll shade you. Think about the ridiculousness of that idea. I mean, think of the scene. Tall cedars of Lebanon, and then you have this dry, spiny tumbleweed, that says, you can get shade in my shadow. What kind of shadow does this tumbleweed cast? The whole idea of it is, he has nothing to offer. He has nothing to offer these trees, but he's willing to take it, take the job. Where does the mistake lie? Well, first it lies with the trees, right? Because the trees keep seeking for what they don't need. How tall are these trees? Taller than any of these other plants. How much shade do they have relative to the other plants? Far more. So they're seeking from the others things they already have in their God-given design. Similarly, the men of Shechem are seeking for a king when God has already appointed them judges. They already have everything they would want from the king that they're asking for. It's already available to them if they would just see that it is. Meanwhile, they're seeking lesser things and they finally settle on the worst possible alternative. A bramble. When the Lord has appointed someone in a role of service, that appointment will become evident to more than just one person. It will become confirmed by others who see the opportunity. They will see the hand of the Lord in that person's life, and they'll understand this is someone who has a call on their life, and we can benefit from that call. That's why Scripture talks about laying on of hands by elders who would then appoint someone into service. That is a way of us coming alongside someone and saying, we see what God's doing in your life. We want to confirm it with you that this is where God has called you. The circumstances of your life show that to us. Sometimes you'll find someone who wants to take on a role for themselves and that confirmation is lacking. And that often happens in the context of teaching. People, I think, who get very enamored by watching someone else teach and be on a stage or be in front of people and they think, oh, that just looks so cool. I want to do that too. And maybe their heart's in it for the right reasons, but they're still naming something for themselves that God hasn't named for them. And they're looking at it from that romanticized point of view. And I've, I've run into that at times. You're either called to do it or you're not. If you are, it'll be evident. And others will confirm it. And if it's not the case that you're called to do that, well, then there's something else you're called to do and you're missing it right now. You need to shift gears into something else and look at what that is, whatever that is that God has for you. In verse 15, the bramble says to the trees, I'll come be your king. I'll come rule over you. I'll come shade you with my brambles. And then the bramble ends by saying, keep in mind, he says, I can also bring fire. What he's referring to there is the way a bramble is exceedingly dry. It's a, basically a whole rolling piece of kindle. 
And in the Palestinian desert, the heat and the dryness and the intensity of the sun is such that it can produce spontaneous combustion in brambles, in small dry plants on the ground. It makes them especially dangerous to be around large trees, right? The last thing a large tree should want is one of these rolling pieces of kindle down below it. And so bringing this bramble close to the trees threatens destruction by fire. And of course the parallel there you can see clearly, right? You play with fire, you get burned. They are taking a great risk in seeking someone to rule over them who can do nothing for them and they are already possessing of everything they want from this individual. So then Jotham applies the lesson in verse 16. He says, Now therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, but you have risen against my father's house today and have killed his sons, seventy men, on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative. Well, if then, if you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jeroboam and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled and he went to Beer and he remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. Well, he says in verse 16, And it's convoluted because he puts this clause in the center of what he says. And we'll try to break this up a little so it's easier to understand. He says in verse 16 that if indeed their selection of Abimelech is based on God's leading of the people in integrity, in other words, then he says in verse 19, you should rejoice over this selection. Because if this anointing of king is according to God's will and God's plan and God's purpose, well then Jotham can't stand in their way. No man would be able to stand in their way. It's meant to be. So all we can do is rejoice in God's selection. That's what he's saying. If I'm wrong, well, I can't stop you, and God's happy with this, so who am I? But then he reminds them, he says, but, you know, the men of Shechem, the men that are supporting Abimelech's rise to power, you're not really following a pattern here that would tell me that God is behind this. First, he says, you haven't really dealt well with my household, that is, the household that produces this next line of king. Gideon, my father, he risked his life for you guys. He freed you from the oppression of the Midianites. He ruled you successfully for all these years. And yet, you have not repaid all of that faithfulness with respect, with appreciation for his family. In fact, you have contributed to murdering 69 out of the 70 brothers. And you've selected Abimelech, not because he was anointed by the Lord as judge, not because somebody came in with authority and declared him to be king, but because he's your relative. That's the only reason you picked him. In other words, Jotham is saying, hey, if this is all on the up and up, well, great. But, you know, when I look at it, it doesn't look like it's on the up and up. Nothing about it looks right. So in summary, he insinuates, you know, you're not operating with any sanctioning from the Lord. You're not operating in obedience. And if that's true, well, then you just took a big risk, didn't you? Because what you've risked is not aligning yourself with the wrong guy. What you've risked is not aligning yourself with God. And he says, as a result, drawing from the analogy of the bramble, fire is going to come from Abimelech and from you, you guys are going to burn each other up. And he says this essentially as a prophecy. He calls upon the Lord to fulfill this prophecy for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of what's just in this case. 
And then he retreats, it says, into hiding. He goes to a town called Bier, which is a town we don't know where this is today. No one knows where this was. The word Bier just means well. So it may be that this wasn't a town at all. He may literally be hiding for several years in a deep well to avoid being discovered and killed. As for Abimelech, well, we're going to have more time to study him in the coming weeks. But the short of it is he doesn't rule for very long and he doesn't rule over much territory. But his rule is marked by great treachery and bloodshed. Let's just look at the beginning of it. Verse 22. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come. And their blood might be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them. And on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. So we're told Abimelech has ruled Shechem and the surrounding area of Israel for three years. It says he ruled over Israel, but as you'll see later, it's not literally the case that he ruled the full height and breadth of the land. He ruled over a a little section of Israel that was around Shechem. And then after three years, his rule begins to unravel. Why? Well, notice it says, very specifically, the Lord sends an evil spirit who, by his working, disrupts the trust that existed initially between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Now, this is one of several places in the Bible where you will hear that the Lord has, quote, sent an evil spirit to do his bidding. Later in 1 Samuel, you hear about it happening to Saul. An evil spirit, in case you're wondering, is a specific reference to a fallen angel or to a demon. Why are they called evil spirits? Well, they're evil in the sense that they have rebelled against the Lord. They have aligned themselves with Satan. Revelation tells us that a third of the angelic realm joined with Satan in his own rebellion against the Lord and fell, that is, fell into sin with Satan. And that third of the angelic realm now constitute the demon realm that we hear about in Scripture. You see them throughout Scripture, not just in the Gospels, but you can very clearly see them working in the Gospels. It's obvious they are not interested in serving the Lord or any of His purposes. And these spirits, as you might imagine, are not inclined to cooperate with the Lord's will. So that might beg the question, what does it mean that he sent him? Did he call the demon up to heaven and say, I've got a little plan for you. Would you like to do a little mayhem? Stretch your wings a little bit? And the demon says, oh, of course, this will be awesome. What can I do? No, it doesn't work that way. Not that we can tell anyway. So that begs the question again, how are they sent? Well, this is probably the best example I know of in all of Scripture of Romans 8.28, of the principle of Romans 8.28. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So the Lord can direct the actions of evil, the actions of His enemies, so that it works to good in some larger purpose. The world is filled with violence. The world is filled with hatred for God's people. And the source for all of that is Satan and the demons that have followed Him and all of the the sin that has come from Satan. But all of that can be harnessed by God. Even those who oppose God can be brought into conformance with His will as He deems appropriate, which is why the Bible can assure us nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's no force greater than God, and God is always at work to the outcome of good for us. In this case, we hear the Lord says, you know, I need to stir up some animosity between Abimelech and the men of Shechem because I need to undo what this man is seeking to do. And what He uses, apparently, is an evil agent, a demon. Why? Because the Lord Himself cannot be, nor will He ever be, the author of sin. He can, however, direct the existing sinful desires of creatures, whether human or demon, 
so that those creatures or those people doing what they will in their sinful nature simply serve his purpose in yielding righteousness and good for those who love the Lord. There was a funny scene in the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding when the women are talking about how to get the husband to do what they want and she says the husband is the head but the woman is the neck and he goes wherever she turns him, you know? A comical way of describing the influence of a wife on her husband, I guess. And there is the Lord working, turning evil to where evil would otherwise not go on its own. But God is not authoring that evil. He's simply channeling it. So that when it does what it will, it produces what he wants. You remember in the Gospels when the Lord says to the twelve disciples, he says, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil, referring to Judas Iscariot, who would betray him? We find later in that story that Judas is indwelt by Satan during the Last Supper which then becomes the impetus for Judas to go do what he does in betraying the Lord. So there's another example of the Lord using evil to accomplish his purpose, for none of the true believing disciples would ever have betrayed their Lord. It required that there be a vessel among them who had the potential to do that. And then it required Satan indwelling him to bring that outcome about. But God in control of the whole of it, so as to make sure it happened the way he wished. So we can imagine that the evil spirit here must have come into the situation with Abimelech, brought certain ideas to mind, some kind of suspicion on the one hand, thoughts of rebellion in the case of the others, triggering thought, emotion, and desires in the flesh of those people so that they begin to contend with one another, so that he creates the motivation in their hearts to act it out. That's always the way the enemy works. We, in our flesh, are naturally predisposed to sin. The enemy, in his desires, is naturally predisposed to moving us away from God's will and away from God's plan. And so when the two combine, it's like gasoline on fire. So when the Lord sends a spirit, he knows the spirit's going to do what comes naturally to the spirit. When he goes to the hearts of an evil man, that one's going to be ready to receive it. In verse 24, the scripture tells us that the Lord intended this evil spirit to visit the same violence and treachery on Abimelech and on the men of Shechem that they had already visited on Gideon's family earlier. Tit for tat, right? What goes round comes round. That's the sense of this. Our culture has another word for this. You know the word? Karma. The world would use the word karma, right? That's an Eastern pagan concept. Karma says that the sum of our actions taken in this life will determine our fate in a future existence. It's works-based. It's a philosophy that's just like all pagans, in the sense that it believes we control our future in some sense. It is a false concept, but it is reflective, at least in one sense, of how the Lord works at times. And you see that here. The Lord may, in His sovereign will, choose to visit the sin of a person upon themselves. Obviously, the consequences of sin, ultimately, is to be in hell for eternity. That's clear. But on occasion, God may give an unbeliever a bit of a down payment on what's coming in the eternal. And men have long noted this tendency. I think that's where this idea of karma comes from. Unbelievers who don't know the true living God and don't understand God's sovereignty, they have to make explanation for what they observe. And what they've observed is that sometimes when you do a lot of bad things, a lot of those bad things tend to come back and rest upon the head of that individual. Sometimes just out of natural consequences, right? I mean, if you sin in sexual promiscuity, you're probably going to suffer a number of circumstances that are the natural consequence of that behavior. Or if you're a thief or a murderer, you're likely going to end up in prison. If you treat people in unkind ways, you're probably not going to have many friends when you need them. Right? That's just the normal, natural consequence. But there's also a supernatural truth here, too. Sometimes the Lord may choose to bring negative consequences into someone's life supernaturally in order to make a point, both to them or to others who observe the situation, that God will not be mocked forever. 
You ever hear these stories of people on the news who do something really crazy and mean to someone else right before they get their comeuppance? Somebody who's yelling at another person in the car next to him just before they get in an accident. The world looks at those situations and says, well, you know, that's, that's karma. In general, there is a truth of Scripture that says sometimes the Lord acts sovereignly by bringing those consequences in a more rapid way rather than waiting for us to receive them all in eternity. That's why Paul tells us, by the way, as believers, don't take vengeance against those who would come against you. Paul says in Romans 12:17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. So, Paul's point is, treat our enemies with kindness and dare them to respond in kind. If they don't relent, if they continue to be mean to us in some sense, if they continue to persecute, well, the Lord has a way of making all of that whole one day, one way or another. Perhaps he won't do anything, not until eternity. Or perhaps he is going to do something in the meantime. But either way, step out of the way, let God do what he will, when he will. Don't try to rush the timetable. Leave room for what he will do and trust him that there will be justice in the end. In this case, we stop now with Abimelech having taken control of the people, at least in Shechem, following him, but the Lord already beginning to work to unravel that rule. Our dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that um, we had a chance to consider how we follow you, Father. Do we follow you in, in listening carefully to the purpose you have in our life, or do we follow, Father, in our own making of uh, what we consider the preferred path? I pray, Lord, you would, would institute in our hearts a desire to find that purpose in our life, that that path you've put us on, directing our steps, that we'd find fullness in it and not in substituting something else. I pray, Lord, you'd give us a confidence that we are where we are to be in your will or direct us otherwise. Lord, I pray as well, we would never take vengeance against those who have harmed us, Father, but give room for you to do as you would will, perhaps to give them grace and mercy and to bring them closer to you and perhaps, Father, if it be your will, to um, exact justice. But in either case, Father, it's in your hands, and we know that. Let us just be good examples of the love and the mercy and forgiveness that Christ showed us first. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've taught us this morning, but I know, Father, you have more to teach us, so I ask you to bring us back and give us a heart and an ear to hear so that we could learn from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.